The views you're about to hear on the Dr. Plus podcast are those of the individual participants and not their employers, any other organization, or the American College of Physicians. So let's get to it. Welcome to Dr. Plus, the podcast where we explore the hobbies, activities, and adventures outside of medicine that make our friends and colleagues truly amazing. I'm Saganish, an academic internal medicine and public health doctor practicing in St. Paul. And I'm David, an internal medicine doctor practicing hospital and clinical medicine in downtown Minneapolis. We recognize our colleagues for their clinical work, research, or incredible academic achievements, but we often don't get to hear about the other sides of their lives, their pluses. Here on this podcast, we get to spend a few minutes getting to know each other in a new way. Today, we are pleased to introduce a colleague and friend of mine, Dr. Ann Pereira, to the podcast. Ann, good to have you on the show. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. So I've known you for a great long time. I've uh, Not to try to give away how old we are, but Ann and I have been friends and colleagues for some 20 years, and we've worked together a long time together. And in just a few moments, we're going to get to your plus, which I am absolutely fascinated about. But before we do, what do you do for a living? Tell us about your day job. Sure, I'd be happy to. Uh, so currently, my day job is primarily serving as a clinician in palliative medicine. I do that about 30% time. And I've also just started in a role as a leadership coach for the organization, which has been a real delight. So that's my mix of professional responsibilities. I'm fairly new to palliative. That's something I think that's probably unusual for many of your listeners. But uh, I've been an internist for, as you alluded to, David, many years, a couple of decades plus now, and I've had roles in medical education leadership. But I pivoted right before the pandemic when I thought everything was calm and there weren't going to be any big changes in the future. I stepped down from my leadership roles and went back and did a fellowship in palliative medicine for one year. So that's a relatively new aspect of my professional role that brings me a lot of joy. Now, Anne, you were a big deal in medical education. I'm not saying you're not a big deal now. You're a big deal now, but you were in the dean's office at, at the medical school. Could you tell us more about how you went from that career to going back to basically being a trainee and learning a whole new specialty? Sure, I'd be happy to. And I think it actually has some tie-ins with my plus. So, so our conversations around my plus might bring us back to this a little bit as well. But, you know, I first heard of palliative medicine back in 2005 or 2006. And I think had it been a specialty when I graduated, I would have pursued it then. It's something I've thought about pursuing really in the 15 years off and on since I first heard about it as a specialty. A big Part of my leadership philosophy has always been that I don't want to stay in a role longer than I'm wanted in that role. So in each leadership role I've had, I've also been in parallel thinking about the work I'm doing and thinking about what's next. And so for a lot of different reasons, what's next became um, the right answer was to pursue that fellowship training after many years of thinking about it. When I felt that I'd reached a point in my uh, curriculum dean role where I'd made a difference and was ready to hand that work off to somebody else with new energy and new vision was the right time to pursue palliative training. I think that's amazing because so much of the journey for internal medicine doctors, you start thinking, this is what I'm going to do. But the truth is there's like 1500 bifurcations and choices that you make in your career. So you said it ties into your plus. Tell us what your plus is and how this all ties in. 
Sure. So my plus is sailing. I'm not quite ready to call myself a sailor yet, but that's my goal. And it ties in in as much as that I did not learn to sail until I was 50. Hmm. So I had a bad experience as a child sailing Mm -hmm. and promised myself I would never put myself at risk like that. And so literally did not get on a sailboat again until my husband, my partner, who loves to sail, asked me if I would consider taking a class. And so finally, at the age of 50, I said, yes, I would take a class. His commitment was if I didn't like it, he would never ask me again. Hmm. Uh, I fell in love with sailing at that point, And we've been sailing ever since. So how does this tie back to palliative medicine? Is it I mean, I could make a guess, but I would just be guessing. How does this tie back to paleo medicine? Sure. I knew you'd ask since I didn't close that loop, Saganish. It's like we planned it, Anne. (laughs) (laughs) I think in a couple of ways. One, being a learner at 50 and something that I thought I wouldn't ever want to do gave me the courage to be a learner professionally again. So for sure, it opened up my mind in terms of realizing just how much joy you can one can find if you if you have the opportunity to learn something new and to take things in a different direction. Uh, certainly my clinical work in palliative informs my life in as much as we don't have anything that's guaranteed to us. And so if there's something I want to pursue, I'm not I'm not willing to put it off. I want to integrate it into my life now and not say it's something I'm going to do when I'm 65 or 70. So, Anne, you talk about sailing and is not putting off things you want to do. But when I've been sailing on like a little Minneapolis lake on a little teeny boat, if I'm not mistaken, a week ago, you were bobbing around in the Atlantic Ocean somewhere between Portugal and the Azores. Could you tell us more about seriously, what do you mean by sailing? What have you been up to? Sure, absolutely. I'll I'll get to the Azores, but I'll back up a little bit maybe before then to explain how I how I got there. Uh, so my husband and I have owned a boat on Lake Superior for the past five or six years. It's a it's a big boat. It's a forty five foot sailboat. So this is a boat that you live on that you spend many days or weeks on. Not not a day sailor. So the the big adventure that we had this summer is we moved our boat out from Lake Superior to New England. So that means taking the boat across Lake Superior, Lake Huron, Lake Erie, Lake Ontario, out through the St. Lawrence, down the whole St. Lawrence, past Montreal and Quebec City, out past New Brunswick to Prince Edward Island and Nova Scotia and ultimately to the East Coast. Come on. That is unbelievable. First off, thank you for the geography lesson because I wouldn't have been able to trace that, but just because? Mostly just because I had to I had to look at the map, Saganish, to figure out how water connected one from Lake Superior to New England, which it actually, you, you can stay on water that whole way. Uh, in part because we wanted to sell the boat and get a different boat. And the market is much bigger in New England than it is on Lake Superior. We actually had an offer on the boat in Lake Superior, though, and decided together that we didn't want to sell it. We really wanted the just because. We wanted the adventure of going through the Great Lakes and out the St. Lawrence, which was, it was a huge adventure. On that adventure, I figured out that when I get ready to stop being a doctor and become a full-time sailor, I need to feel competent. A lot of what my professional life has brought me is a deep sense of competence and confidence when I'm doing that work. 
And I'm going to need to feel that same competence, at least in the ballpark. I mean, I, I have a lot to learn, but at least to have some sense of competence as a sailor for my personal well-being and frankly, for my relationship with my spouse. And so that realization led me to pursue this other opportunity, which was to sail offshore from Lagos, which is the southern tip of Portugal on the mainland, out to the Azores, which are islands. It's actually, it's a third of the way across the Atlantic that we sailed. So I just came back Friday from that trip. So Anne, I know because you have told me that you did the trip in Portugal a third of the way across the Atlantic. And by the way, good to see you back alive. You didn't drown. (laughs) Um, Because you wanted to learn to be an independent sailor, independent of your spouse, whom you did the trip, you know, the North American adventure. Can you tell us what that was like? Talk us through what it was like sailing a third of the way across the Atlantic when you are not yet an expert. And and what did you learn and what was that experience like? Great question. Thank you for asking it. If you're familiar with type one fun, type two fun, and type three fun. Type one fun is a party. It's fun now. Type two fun, it's fun when you look back on it and you've done it. And type three isn't fun now. It's not fun in the future. It never was fun. (laughs) So I'd say that this trip was primarily type two fun, maybe some type one fun and even a little type three fun. So it was a it was a trip with two professional crew, a skipper and a first mate who have spent their lives sailing. And then eight of us paid crew who were there to work and to learn. It was a 65 foot boat, so a very big boat, but a former race boat. So no privacy, no cabins, no privacy. It was two women and eight men. What did I learn? What I was most anxious about wasn't safety. I believe in the safety of of experienced crew and, you know, a a well-run boat. It was more measuring up, especially in a physical skill that I didn't feel competent in, because that's really public when you screw up. And just, you know, as an introvert, tolerating that lack of privacy for two weeks. It was an incredible experience. I learned a phenomenal amount to be out on the ocean where you can't see land anywhere and all you can see is the moon and the stars, really an incredible experience. It was hard sometimes. I'm really thankful that I did it. And now we're talking about doing our own transatlantic crossing at some point. When you say lack of privacy, you're not on like a big cruise ship with your own little berth here. Is that what you mean? You're all just kind of like hanging out in the same area? That's correct. There's no cabins. So we have berths, pipe berths that are just along the wall on the side of the boat. There's no visual privacy. I want you to paint for us, like, what does a day look like then? You know, and who are the crew? Are they these young 20 year olds? Are they like 80? Who's on the crew? And what does like a typical day look like on a boat? Because I have no frame of reference. I haven't watched enough TV for that. Oh, I did watch. What is that? What is that reality show? The crew under... It wasn't like below decks. It wasn't like below deck. Well, then I'm totally lost. So you're going to have to paint a different picture for me. Um, So you take shifts. So it's a 20, it's 24 hours, right? So one thing is that sometimes people haven't thought through is you never stop, right? You're in 15,000 feet of water. You don't anchor to spend the night. So it's constant movement 24 seven and a lot of movement. Sailboats are built so that you can always be bracing yourself so you don't get thrown around. So, you know, I have some bruises that I'm not sure where they came from, because if you're not attentive and the boat heals or shifts suddenly, you can get thrown a little bit. 
So it's, it's constantly being aware of your movement in the boat, um, moving around the boat. And we take shifts. So you have three hours on and six hours off around the clock. So when you're on, that means you're up in the cockpit. It's a, as I said, a former racing boat that's very performance focused. So there's no canopy, there's no cover, there's no cushions. You are in the cockpit steering or in the cockpit watching to make sure that things are safe, sometimes adjusting lines. And then when you're off for six hours, sometimes you're lying in the bunk, your bunk sleeping, or sometimes you're, you know, having a meal. It's not unlike being on call as a resident. You know, you do your three hour shift and then you've got some time to relax, and then you're back again. So working overnight and that sort of thing. I was kind of middle of the pack in terms of age. So I'm 56. There were people in their 60s who had retired. The youngest person on the boat was 36, who had just taken some time off of work. But it's it's often people who are trying to figure out, do they want to get their own boat? Do they want to make their own passage? Trying to get experience with a with a professional skipper. So you feel ready to do that without a professional crew. So, Anne, I followed you on your trip from Duluth, Minnesota to, I think it was Newport, Rhode Island, and that I saw amazing stops in marinas and restaurants in Montreal and you going through the locks and there was a lot of land. This sounds very different um, on the open ocean. Can you compare those two experiences, the one from Minnesota to the East Coast versus being on the open ocean? Yeah, that's a great question. The only open ocean sailing we did on our trip, we've called it the Guidance Exodus. Our boat's name was Guidance, and my niece coined the term Exodus to get it out of the Great Lakes. But on Guidance Exodus, we spent a lot of time exploring on land, and the only ocean passage we did was two overnights from Nova Scotia to Newport. And you're right, on the other hand, we were out at sea for many days in a row. Not the whole time. We did stop in Porto Santo, which is an island just north of Madeira, and then we made a couple of stops once we hit the Azores. And it made me realize part of what I love about sailing is the land adventures, the moving from point A to point B on a sailboat, putting down your anchor, going into a marina, and then going exploring a new town or a new place. You heard me talk about our trip this summer, um, being in rural Quebec, where people don't speak English and really don't speak French either. They speak a patois. It was fascinating. So all that was wonderful. There's also something really special about being on the open ocean. All the worries of land fade far away. It's very much an exercise in being present and in thinking about the next three hours, the next nine hours, what the weather is that's coming, what the sail trim is that you're going to use. Your world really becomes just what's right in front of you, which is really powerful. I assume also really rare when you think about the chaos that not just our daily lives are in, but just the chaos of our practices. That's actually the opposite of what our daily lives are like as physicians. For sure, that's true, Saganish. And I think the calm that comes with not being connected to cell service, not being connected to Wi-Fi. I said goodbye to my daughters before we headed off and they knew they weren't going to be able to reach out to me for a week, which was good for them and good for me, probably. So you said you had mentioned that you and your spouse were thinking about your next adventure. What is the next adventure? So the next adventure is we're in the process of purchasing a catamaran. So our previous boat was a monohull, which is just the one hull. 
catamaran always has the two hulls. The reason we're making that move is because we want to live aboard and catamarans are much easier to live on than monohulls. They're more stable at anchor. There's more space. Um, it's more comfortable for guests to come and guests have a little bit more privacy. So we're in the process of purchasing a catamaran that's currently in North Carolina. And our plan is uh, later this winter to move largely onto that boat and to sail it to the Bahamas for the winter and then back up from the Bahamas, Florida, up the coast to Nova Scotia and Maine for the summer. Uh, Jim will live on the boat essentially full time. I'll go back and forth between the boat and Hennepin when I'm working clinically. Uh, we're going to sell our house and get a little apartment in Minneapolis. Oh, like you're all in. Get out of here. What a big decision. It is a big decision that's been in transition for a couple of years. And this plus, if you will, for my physician plus, is me figuring out who I am besides being a doctor and besides being a medical educator so that I can figure out this transition to life after medicine, which Dr. Hilden is my boss's boss. So I hope he wants to keep me for a while in this role. I want to have this clinical role and this coaching role for now and giving myself some time and space to imagine what I look like when I'm done being a doctor. So you're going to the Bahamas. Now you're talking my language. So I can imagine being on this beautiful boat that has a little kitchenette in there and you're stir frying a little food and you're having a glass of wine and it's nice outside and you can jump off and swim in the bay. So that seems to be maybe part of it, but you're also talking about things like braving the Atlantic, crossing the Atlantic where you have to chain yourself to the boat so you don't fall in. Is that also part of what I heard you saying earlier that you're also going to do like an Atlantic crossing? Yeah, so that's very astute. You're right that the, what you described in the Bahamas is pretty accurate, what, what you can do when you're on anchor for a few weeks or longer at a time. And at some point, we'd like to do a transatlantic on our boat. That would need to happen in some year's time, I think, when I'm no longer working clinically. Would that be just the two of you doing a transatlantic? Or are you guys like the skipper and Gilligan, and you're the skipper and Jim's can be Gilligan, you know, the first mate from the old Gilligan's Island, and you're going to have a crew? Or is it just going to be the two of you? And are you crazy? I think that David is asking, when you take reservations, when are you going to be opening up for reservations? Oh, no, I'm into the Bahamas, Saganish. I'm all about that. I'm going to be in the Bahamas and watch the little per the pretty fish in the little <laughs> bay. And we're going to be anchored up there. And it's going to be something like out of a TV show. The transatlantic crossing, though, mm. is that just the two of you? So that's a great question. And yes, Saganish, David's already on the list for the Bahamas. That's more his style than a passage, I think. So people do transatlantics. Just two. I mean, people circumnavigate with one person, which is unfathomable to me. I wouldn't do that. And I would want at least one, if not two additional crew to, to cross the Atlantic. I like safety. And uh, just two people to cross the Atlantic makes me feel too vulnerable if something were to happen to one of us, especially because I don't like sleep deprivation that much. I want a good watch schedule where I can get my rest. Yeah. I want to spend a little bit of time on this like thoughtful transition out of medicine, because a lot of times that isn't something we talk about. You know, you are, it sounds like thoughtfully thinking years in advance of retirement and years in advance of this big transition. I would just like you to talk about that. What, what gave you that idea? Why are you doing it this way? Most people 
don't, at least the physicians I've seen retire, may mark the time like, oh, I've ended, now I'm going to take a little retreat. But I love what you're doing, and I'd love to learn more. It's a great question, Saganish, and I'll do my best to answer it. I think it circles back to the palliative work, both just recognizing in my clinical practice that, you know, the best laid plans can go awry. And so to the degree possible, not putting things off. And also, you know, I remember when I told somebody at the medical school that I was going to step down from my dean role, step down from my full professor role and go back to, to being a fellow. And they said, wow, I would have thought of that for somebody else, but not for you. You seem too serious to do that. I also had people who told me that they thought I was being very brave and that they were envious, which I thought was interesting. But I think having been able to do that and realize that the world didn't come crashing down enables me to do this. So as I said before, I am a firm believer in being in a leadership position and being all in in that leadership position while also thinking about succession planning. Because I think that a mark of a good leader is that the place continues strong when you step down. So I think all of that experience, I mean, I've really reinvented myself professionally every seven to 10 years. And so this feels like a natural extension of this. I'm reinventing myself for what my role in my life looks like when my career isn't the biggest piece of my life. And how do you prepare for that? And like, what is the process like? Uh, that's a good question. And I'm laughing only because I don't know how well I'm doing it. So you, this answer might come back to bite me at some point. Because it's really hard, right? I mean, our, it's really hard. our identities as physicians are so tied up in our professional work. I mean, we spent years and years, decades, really, not only in our formal training, but then in our accrued experience, preparing ourselves for, for this point in our career. So it's really hard to think about letting go. And remember, I have four children. So there was a period of time when they were young adolescents where all I did was mom and doctor and brush my teeth and maybe get enough sleep on a good day. So I really waited until there's a point in my life where, where the, the parenting became a little less intensive and I could start to think about how am I going to fill that space that's come up for me in a meaningful way. How has it affected your children? And you brought that up. And I, I do know the four wonderful children and I, and I know your partner. And do they think, wow, mom's off floating around in the Atlantic somewhere? Or, or what has been their reaction? Yeah, it's a great question. And frankly, our relationship with them is some of what we've been navigating as a couple as we think about this next step, because it's much easier for my partner to think of leaving the kids for months at a time than it is for me. So trying to figure out how to navigate that part of our lives too has been something we've thought about. I would say, well, we have two boys and two girls. And like most people's experience, the girls have a lot more to say than the boys do. So it's a little hard to know what the boys are thinking sometimes. I think the girls are a little bit nervous for my safety and also deeply relieved that I have something else in my life besides following them around and getting up in their business. I know you both have children, so you know this too. They want me available when they need me and they really want me not up in their business when they don't feel like they need me. So I think they're proud of me for learning something new at this age. They're excited for me. 
you know, my biggest safety worry recently was the orcas. I don't know if you're familiar with what's going on with the orcas off the Iberian Peninsula, but that was actually a real safety issue that made them nervous too. You have to say more about the orcas. I don't know the orcas off the Iberian Peninsula story. So orcas are really bright animals and engage in social behavior. So 30 or 40 years ago, there was a period of time in the Pacific Northwest where orcas were wearing dead salmon on their heads. And that was some sort of social phase that came and went. But what's happening right now with the orcas off the Iberian Peninsula, so off of Spain and Portugal, is that they're attacking sailboats and biting their rudders. And nobody understands where this behavior is coming from. There's a there's a hypothesis that maybe a, a senior female had a bad experience with a sailboat. And so now there's some sort of reaction. Orcas could destroy a sailboat if they wanted to. So I personally don't think that's what's going on because they don't they don't attack the boat. They don't attack the people on the boat. They just attack the rudder until they bite the rudder off the boat, basically. And so. The other theory is that this is some sort of adolescent wilding that, you know, they think it's fun and they're showing all their buddies how cool this is. Can I assume that the orcas didn't bite the rudder off your boat? They did not. I did not see orcas. I saw other whales, but not orcas. But we had a safety plan in place for if we encountered orcas. Once we got far enough away from the peninsula, once we got far enough away from the mainland, we were fine. And most of them actually we knew were up further north, so we weren't too worried, but it was something we all talked about and had a plan for. So I think I'm going to ask you the hardest question in like the few minutes that we have left. You have been really instrumental in medical education and kind of restructuring the things that medical students, at least at the University of Minnesota, have been have exposure to. I want you to prognosticate a little bit. You know, we've completely changed how we train medical students, kind of decentering the role of physician in their life and helping them see that we are not it, that, you know, we are dispensable. We are, it's okay to take care of ourselves. In fact, it's essential to have this broader interest. So I wonder if you could just maybe speak a little bit to that. And, you know, I feel like some of the inks that I have is I was never given that permission to decenter my my career, whereas the medical students are almost like very, very different. So I just wanted you to speak to that and what you think about that. Is it a great thing? Is it problematic? Yeah, it's a great question, Saganesh, and uh, I don't know that I can do it justice. I think that like any person trained in a traditional environment, there are parts of me that think that worry about what we lose with this change. And so I'll, I'll own that and be honest about that. On the other hand, I think that the old paradigm of physician as selfless, always putting their career first, caring about career at the expense of potentially family and other other relationships, I'm really thankful that that's passed or is passing. I think there's still places where that exists. And my hope for the future is that it will bring more joyful physicians to their work when we do come to our work. So that's what I love about this. Plus, I feel like when I do show up and work as a palliative clinician, I'm more capable of finding joy in that work because it's not the only joy that I have in my life. I have loved watching this constant evolution that you have in your career. And you've just always been like, I'm just going to do this next thing. And then I'm going to do this next thing. And it's really amazing. 
in in all honesty, I think that is truly the new model, right? I you know when I started my career at Hennepin, I thought, oh, I'm going to retire from Hennepin. I may retire from Hennepin eventually, circling back. But the idea I had of a physician is you take a role, you go within an organization, you stay there for 30 years, and then you retire. And so the first time I switched careers and I moved out of a position, I was like, oh, huh, I think this is how you sustain yourself in your practice. It has opened up doors for me and opportunities. And it's been so much fun. I'm quicker to quit things now. I'm like, yeah, that was good. No, I don't need to do that anymore. I think people who don't do that sometimes can reach a point in their career when they're my age, where they feel like they're stuck in a corner. I'm too young to retire, but I'm not loving this work, but I guess I'll just see it out. I'm sad for people that are in that corner because that's a miserable corner. That really resonates. Thank you, Anne. We have been talking to Dr. Ann Pereira, palliative care physician, executive leadership coach, I might add, and now accomplished sailor. Um, it has been so great to hear about your plus. Thank you for being with us today. And it has been such an amazing conversation with you and one we could keep having into the future. So thank you so much for giving us your time. I really enjoyed spending this time with both of you. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Dr. Plus. Dr. Plus is sponsored by generous funding from the American College of Physicians and is produced by Julie Sensuo. 